Support for Sponsor Talk and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Welcome to the Sponsor Talk Podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways and how brands interact with properties in sports, arts, film, music, you name it. I'm today's co-host, Jason Smith. You can follow me at SponsorshipJ on Twitter or on LinkedIn to keep engaged with our Sponsor Talk community. Hopefully today you learn something new about the industry and challenges you to keep thinking differently. I was born and raised in Stamford, Connecticut, um, about 45 minutes outside of New York City, small city of about 120,000 people. Um, I thought and I still think to this day that it's, it's the best combination of sort of city, country. It's, it's a real melting pot uh, of a town. And my family has been here since um, going back to like the early 1800s. My grandmother was, was born here in 1891. <laughs> rode a horse and carriage. And so sort of generationally, we've been here. And um, so I've always had an affinity for the place. And um, that's, that's kind of where I grew up and small, you know, family, I have a, a brother and a sister. And, um, you know, we all played sports growing up. And, and you were a football player, right? Yeah, football, I, basketball. I played football in high school. And then in college, uh, my uh, my father was a football coach and he was an NFL scout and, and um, both college football, high school football. Um, I early on um, really wanted to play college basketball. Um, I used to practice, I mean, I'm not even kidding you, like eight, nine hours a day. I would track like a thousand shots a day. I would sleep with my basketball, shovel the driveway. It was, it was pretty. Hey, on, that, on that pace, you should have been in the NBA, Bob. Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely put in the hours early on and, uh, um, yeah, I, you know, I really, I wanted to play college basketball at St. John's. That was like my dream at the time. And, uh, uh, it, it, it didn't work out. I think I realized, uh, my freshman, sophomore year, um, I, I thought that uh, I had a bad game my freshman year in high school. And uh, there was a there was a scout there actually uh, from UConn at the time, and because uh, I had an amazing game the day before or the game before, and uh, I had an okay game, we lost, and I literally thought that that was my one shot at playing college basketball, and it kind of crushed my dreams after like eight years of just grinding uh, obsessively about basketball, and I started to realize, and I think my dad probably had something to do with it. He he was. He never pushed me into one sport or another or anything like that. He really kind of let us, you know, be kids and do, do what we like. Um, but he had said, look, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm a simple man. There's, there's a hundred scholarships and a hundred players on a football team in college. There's 12, 15 in, in college basketball might be easier for you to do that in, in college football. And that kind of resonated with me. You know, I think a lot of college athletes, there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of life lessons that are learned as you're a student athlete. Um, and a lot of student athletes do go on to become entrepreneurs because of, because of some of the, the principles that, and work ethic and things that they, they take with them. 
how do you feel like, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur and, and um, the founder of Sponsor United and, and um, obviously you have a career path, which we'll walk through here, but how do you feel like playing college football and being a student athlete that way? How, how have you been able to apply that to your business today? I love this question and I don't hear it that often, but there, there were so many lessons and it's not a cliche. There were so many lessons that come out of that experience that I feel like apply in, in life in general. And I don't think it's, um, it's sort of revisionist history. You look back and you're like, Oh yeah, that's, that's why that, that was helpful. Um, you know, first and foremost, we have a company with people. I was just talking to somebody today that was based out of Spain that works for us. He's never been to the United States. He went to, I think, University of Real Madrid or Real Madrid University. Um, and a few days ago, somebody in Canada or a couple of people in Canada and, and before that, other people. And so my point is you, you have to, you know, in our organization or any large organization, especially today, you have to be able to engage and work with all different types of personalities, people from different backgrounds, different experiences, uh, different ways in which they even work. You know, we work with both technology developers and uh, marketing people, you know, people that kind of span the spectrum of, um, you know, sort of the abstract to the, to the uh, technical. And I think that any sort of large team environment like football, 110 players, um, you know, I'm, I'm from Connecticut. My uh, uh, friend from across the hall at Temple was, grew up in Compton, California. Um, and, you know, and I had friends that were from small towns in Pennsylvania and from Brooklyn, New York and from different places. And you have to live, eat, breathe, train, practice, collaborate with, you're forced to really become a, you know, a, a cohesive unit. And, you know, to be able to, especially when you're young and you, you're probably only exposed to your little you know, silo of, of the world, wherever that may be, whether it's a city, country, or whatever, rich, poor, um, it's just so valuable to be kind of thrown into that melting pot and yeah, learning absolutely. from others and understanding how other people work and how do, you, how do you do your best work within the framework of a larger organization. So you know, that alone was, was super helpful. And to have five years of th that sort of interaction before I ever went out into the professional world, I just think it's, it's something that it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate more people don't have that opportunity because I just think it's, it's the best. You really, you learn a respect and appreciation um, for others and, and the like. Um, besides that, I mean, you know, there's so much that's outside of your control in sports. You, you could be the greatest athlete in the world, but you you might lose the game because of something that's, that's, you know, not in your control. And then you um, might have an amazing, amazing game yourself, but still lose too. Right. Exactly. Or you might not be the person that's pulling your weight because you're with a, with a really highly talented uh, group and, and you need to sort of look at within yourself to say, how do I step up to everybody else and whatnot? So it also know, helps you look at it and go, okay, how do I, how do I now take myself to the next level too? Right. Yeah. And I, I just think there's so much in life that's that's both um, sort of, uh, you know, randomness and luck and uh, but also, you know, hard work plays a part in that. And but there's there's a lot that's outside of your control. Um, and so to be able to both look at, you know, hey, I you know, there's certain things I can't control. And how do you mentally process that and continue to move forward and prove yourself at the same time? It forces you to look within to say, 
um, you know, you could do it in sports because a lot of times you can see like whether or not you're performing, but it's also being able to take a hard look at yourself to, to understand, you know, there was a point in my uh, career where I was like, I, I don't think I'm going to go to the NFL. And before that, you kind of have this mentality of like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm moving up, up, up and up. Um, and then you have to have that, you know, kind of honest chat with yourself. And that happens within your career too, of like, where, where am I strong, weak, you know, what do others see in me that maybe I don't see in myself or what do they see in me that's, that's is skill that I didn't even know that was in me um, as well. So, you know, there's so many life lessons related to, um, to sports and football that, um, you know, the mental and the physical uh, when it's the fourth quarter and you have to remember all the plays. I remember being so nervous as a center my freshman and sophomore year. Which we is the quarterback the of the offensive line, right? You got to know everybody, what everybody's yeah. doing. I don't think people, I don't know if people realize this, or at least when I was playing, um, you had to know all the line calls. You had to know all the changes to make based on the, on the lineup. And you have to snap the ball. And I remember my freshman year, my true freshman year, we were playing at the Carrier Dome. You know, it was McNabb and um, I think it was Marvin Harrison, I think might have been playing at the time. It was parents weekend. The first string center went down with an injury. This is like my third or fourth weekend to, you know, my college career. It was so loud in there. This is back when Syracuse was, you know, pretty good powerhouse. And I was so nervous about like remembering the play calls. It wasn't about like who I was going to even line up against, <laughs> you know, some 300 pounder that was, you know, five years older than me, probably stronger than me. It was the nerves of like, am I going to remember the play calls and be able to snap the ball at the same time? So you have all these different pressures in a very condensed period of time that, you know, you might face that later on in life as an executive or a leader, these decisions that need to be made and these ways you need to process a lot of different input and information um, where I think um, it helps to be able to sort of process that, stay calm and, and, you know, make the smartest decisions you can make, or at least make an aggressive mistake and not sort of sit there with your head on a swivel, not really, you know, deciding on doing anything. Yeah, for sure. And all that is amazing. I, I love that. I, I want to transition to, to, to the education part of your, of your time at school. So, I mean, right, right now you're in the sponsorship sales marketing world um, of, of, of sponsorships and, and, uh, you received your degree in criminal justice. Why did, why did you have a focus there? I would have thought maybe advertising marketing, but I mean, I've had a lot of, a lot of people on the show and, and they have their degree in something way different from a sponsorship standpoint and marketing and advertising and, and all of that. What, why did you choose uh, criminal justice? I, I think choosing a major when you're 17 years old or 18 years old, you know, look, going through that process reminds me very much of like the, the 1700s where you have to choose your apprenticeship and that's what you're going to do the rest of your life. And, you know, I think obviously the world has changed. Um, you know, people change jobs so many times. And for me, I had no idea, like many other people, what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I was good at, what I might be interested in. You, you know, I wasn't thinking about that uh, at that time. So when I was getting recruited by different schools, I was recruited by Temple, I remember I can vividly see the program uh, that I looked through with all the different majors and I was trying to figure out what kind of looks fun and interesting, you know, at the time. Did you want to, did you want to be a police officer? Well, as I went through that, I saw they had a criminal justice program 
my grandfather was a, a chief of detectives here in, in Stanford in, in like the 1930s and 40s. I had a cousin who was a, uh, a sergeant, uh, another cousin who was a, um, a chief in, in actually the next town over for like 20, 25 years. Um, and, and my father, uh, he, he didn't do that, but he was, he was definitely, um, he once wanted to go into the FBI, but his father discouraged it actually. Mm -hmm. So I kind of looked at that and said, and, and in Stanford, Connecticut, in, in some cities, um, the pay was with overtime was like really, really good. It was six figures. Um, so I kind of looked at that and said, well, you know, that, that seems like something that I could do, something that I'd probably be interested in. Um, so I chose that. And, um, and that, that's kind of how I, I chose the major. When I graduated and towards the end of my graduation, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I figured um, I, I didn't pay enough attention to it. I was so focused on sort of athletics and then sort of the college experience. So towards the end, I was trying to figure out what that would look like. And I kind of looked at that as always sort of my de facto um, role. So I, um, I went through the Connecticut State Police and the Stanford uh, police department uh, took the test. I, I had to take them when I was in college. They only had them during certain times. You know, if you miss that, you couldn't do it. So I remember vividly that um, while I was in college, I wanted to come back up here to take certain tests, but I um, there was a couple times where I couldn't make them because of spring football or fall football or whatever it might be, and um, and I wouldn't be able to commit to it. But I did end up um, going through both of those processes. And then I had an opportunity, my sister, my older sister was, and uh, she still lives in, in uh, Massachusetts today. She was living in Boston. Her then boyfriend, now husband of, of uh, many years, uh, was roommates with a, uh, the director of sales for a sports radio station in Boston. And she- and This had, is Intercom Communications, is that right? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and she had caught wind through him that there was like a- administrative assistant or a staff assistant job that was going to be open or was open. And, um, and she said, you know, she encouraged me to, you know, you should come up here and, and try it. Um, and so I kind of went up there on a whim, wasn't really even thinking about business. But exactly. well, I, I was looking at your intercom time there and I, th I thought it was really interesting. So you're doing, this is kind of your first like account executive radio sales job, right? Um, it was actually just a, a staff assistant to start. So I was just doing kind of, you know, the grunt work research. Okay. Work so it wasn't necessarily sales at, at first. It was more of no, doing, it, doing a lot of the grunt work. It was like the lowest. There was no demand for this job. I, I think I came to realize there was like no other people I was competing with for it. It was, it was as low a pay as you could, you can imagine. And um, yeah, it was, it was almost like a program that, they brought in, I think, four people every year or six months, and and then those that can kind of cut it, because you you would actually sit in on training and you'd sit in on the sales meetings and you'd interact with the salespeople, helping them with their research or presentations and things like that. So it was it was a it was a great experience. And, and you were there, and you, you were there for three years, and and really was able to progress almost every year. It seems like they 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 promoted you. In, in some way. I mean, obviously that's pretty quick pro progression for you. Um, for your first job, you were there three years and, and able to do that. What do you, what were you doing to see that kind of progression? Well, because I like had no business background at all and I'm going into like my first job with like a tie and an office. I remember 
thinking like everybody else here has more experience, more business savvy, they had, whether internships and jobs, and I have none of this. And I had come from like years of just, you know, from basketball training, like hardcore. I, was, I'm, I could be pretty, like, I could be very, very laser focused and, and sort of in, intense with working. And so my mentality going into that job was, I'm just going to outwork every, like I'm going to, in fact, I said that in my job interview at the end, because there wasn't much to go off of. The very last thing I said to the person who hired me was, I will outwork anyone you ever hire here. And I probably said it in the most intense way at the time. <laughs> and I almost <laughs> looked at it as a competition. So, you know, day one, um, now I slept on an air mattress in my sister's living room in her, um, that I had to roll up every morning and put behind a chair uh, and her dogs like slept on the couch because I had nowhere to live. I had no money. Um, and so, you know, no friends, didn't know anybody in Boston, wasn't even expecting to go to Boston. It was kind of, they hired me. I was like, I was like surprised they hired me. So I, um, I just decided, all right, well, I pretty much worked like seven days a week. Um, I was there at like 530 in the morning. I, I basically can like said I was going to to myself. Um, I will get into the office before everybody. I will leave after everybody. I will read every book. I will treat this like I would treat like football training in two a days. And like, this is before, you know, podcasts and, you know, smartphones. So I would yeah. go to the library and get like Zig Ziglar books that I would take out of the library or tapes that you'd put in your car. And I would listen to these things all the time. And I'd go to the library and like read books. And it was, it was pretty intense. It was like the Ivan Drago of like trying to learn like how marketing and sales works in some ways. <laughs> And uh, that's kind of what I did to start. And I think about three months in, it was a program that was like a year program before you moved into sales. And I was, I was just kind of, you know, a, a little bit of a maniac about it. And so um, my, my boss had said, um, I think we just have to let you out of the cage. You're, you're just, you're, you're, you're just raring to go. And, and they gave me an opportunity earlier than that year to, uh, uh, to start into sales. And I had actually secretly been, going into this like uh, mop room and cold calling to practice cold calling, like on the down low and like making my own little prospect list and trying to call companies just so I could get the practice and the reps in before I was actually set to go live in sales. Um, in fact, like I, I would tell them I have to go to a doctor's appointment and I like set up a few meetings. Uh, I didn't tell them that I did this on my own just so I could kind of get some at bats before, uh, before going live. Cause I wanted that, to, that's like, what I was going to ask you. What, what happens when someone actually wanted to meet with you? You yeah, know, so you, I, you just went and took, took them without letting anybody know. Yeah. I, I just said I had to go somewhere. I, yeah, I just made up an excuse. And I remember I went to Maine for one of them, which is not as far as you'd think it would be from Boston. But I remember I had to go up to some uh, outdoor furniture store. Um, I can almost think of the name of it. And I was actually nervous, like in the parking lot, I was like, shake, my hands were shaking. I was about to go into this, uh, this place. And I was asking myself, like, why are you nervous like this? I wasn't even nervous, like going into like, you know, Beaver Stadium <laughs> or something. And I'm like, why am I nervous? I was afraid about it's going to ask the wrong question or whatever. And so I was glad. Did you I ever got close a deal where you had to like tell tell them, hey, by the way, I sold this deal? Uh, I did it. Um, so I had a lot that was like pending and and kind of close to coming in. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to kind of start. I, I I try to like time it where I I felt like it was going to happen soon before I got too serious about it. Um, I didn't I didn't want to I didn't want to start too early on that. So 
Um, and then I think I had a, a deal within the week. Now they thought that I had just started calling people that week and I had gotten a deal already and it doesn't really happen that fast. And I had probably, I think I'd been working on this deal um, for, uh, it was like Quincy Fire Fireplace. Uh, I think it was the name of the company, something like that. I'd been working on that deal for like three months and it just so I was like, Bob, that's amazing. No one's ever closed a deal that quick. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. That's, that's almost exactly how it went. Um, so oh, that's great. I wanted to like create this perception that I was just like, you know, going off to the races and, and whatnot. So oh, that's, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's great. And it kind of leads us into when you went to, you, you were there for three years and then went to clear channel communications up in New York. Um, and that's really where you, you became a, a manager up there. I think you went to sell for them, but then, but then you had a chance to, to be a manager there. What, what did you learn in your first role in management, you know, with in radio sales? Well, I think it's what I learned afterwards because, um, I was sort of thrown into this, um, uh, it was a different radio station from where I sold, um, different sort of environment, uh, demographic, everything. It was like a classic rock radio station. And the staff was, um, it, was a, it was a mixture of young and, and seasoned uh, executives uh, from all walks of life. And I think up to that point, I thought, well, I'm successful because I did it this way. And therefore, everybody probably will be successful if they do it my way. Um, you know, kind of not the best way to maybe necessarily. The my way or the highway? <laughs> uh, not, not, not that so much. I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like a, sar a drill sergeant. It was more sure, like, hey, sure. I was successful doing this. I bet everybody should be doing it this way. In my head, I wasn't. Well, you had, you had found a recipe and you felt like, well, if everyone uses this recipe, it'll make banana bread, right? Essentially. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that was kind of the biggest challenge was I was, I was definitely dealing with different types of people and different perspectives and experiences and um, and it, it was definitely an organization or, or a group that um, had had tremendous um, ability, but maybe wasn't sort of getting to where they, they you know, could get to in that yeah. regard. Um, and so, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, I think, in, in, in thinking that way. I definitely learned a lot through that experience of, you know, how do you manage people differently? Um, well, what was the difference between Edicom versus uh, Clear Channel? Well, I think it's more a difference of like the New York City media market than the Boston media market. Things just happen faster in general. Sure. Um, I mean, it really like the was deals close faster, or how, what do you mean by faster? Yeah, I mean deals happen so fast. I mean, yeah, you know, you okay. have such a condensed number of agencies that were buying all different types of media um, within that space, and um, not only so there there was that component of it. There was always business taking place. It was almost like a a stock market versus. Um, probably like a mid tier market or even a market like Boston. It just, it just didn't have the volume um, of deals that would take place. <clears throat> and it was also different types of partnerships. There's a lot more agencies involved in these, in these deals. Mm -hmm. There were more PR firms that were involved as well. Um, we were, I was selling it, you know, something that was different sports radio versus sort of top 40 radio, which is more like your teen to young adult lady Gaga sort of things versus, yep you know, the, the two guys on the morning radio show talking about the Red Sox. So it was just, you know, different types of brands, people that were involved. Um, so it really wasn't so much a corporate thing, though uh, Clear Channel, now iHeart, um, definitely a larger organization, many, many more layers and divisions and coverage. 
uh, more resources in a lot of ways as well. Um, so it didn't have, uh, it, it definitely didn't have that sort of family feel to it that, um, that, that was there in Boston. Um, cause it's just, it's just a larger group of people that are, that are involved. Um, and there was just more churn and, and more activity going on, but all the same, it was, um, it was, the, I mean, both were like just great experiences for me. I really lucked out. I mean, I just learned from such a great and diverse group of people through both, uh, both places. And, and then you had a quick stop at Westwood One, which everyone is familiar with Westwood One. You know, they're the ones that cover the NFL, NCAA, the Masters, Olympics, you, you name it, right? Um, and you're the general sales manager there. So tell, tell us about, about that, that experience there. So Clear Channel in, uh, I think it was 2008, got acquired by Bain Capital and um, and so my last like nine months there, um, and, and they had made, uh, some, once they made the acquisition, they formed sort of these, um, these groups that would kind of analyze different business verticals across everything, um, for efficiencies and, you know, 850 radio stations. That's, that's obviously what you do. And I was fortunate enough to be invited onto one of these. So I, I learned a lot cause it was totally outside of my normal, uh, day to day job. It was kind of looking at a macro level uh, at, at the automotive sector uh, in particular and working with Bain Consulting and different managers across the country that were successful in that space. So that was, both were a lot of fun. Um, they then had let go of, um, uh, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, 20, 30% of the, of the organization was let go as part of sort of a consolidation. Fortunately, I wasn't part of that. Uh, but they did, um, one of the decisions they made was to get rid of sort of the mid-tier managers uh, across the country, including within New York. So I was presented with an opportunity by the, um, uh, uh, what was the director of sales? I could, um, I could either take on a, uh, a sales role at a, at basically a list they give you, which was um, you know, they basically say, here's how much you can earn or, or you will earn based on the billing and, and revenues that we're bringing in, which was um, probably about 30% higher than my, my salary. It's, it's kind of weird in media. It's not the same everywhere, but at least at the time that I was there, the sort of mid-tier managers didn't make as much as the, the, the best salespeople. Um, and that's probably in, in a lot of places. The, the best salespeople were making, you know, really, really great money. So I, I kind of had that dangled in front of me that you could actually, like the, the positions being removed along with like 10 or 12 other people um, within uh, Clear Channel New York, you could take this role and do that, um, or you could take severance uh, for the next year, and, uh, but at a, at a lower salary. And I thought about it for a while. Um, at the time, and this is just pure luck, Westwood had uh, been recruiting me for a role there. And I don't know if I've ever told anybody the story before, but so I knew, and, and it was at a like great salary. It was a great opportunity because it went from, I was in local sales, meaning the New York market, New York brands, New York deals, to the role that I was, was going to have an opportunity to go into was more of a national and large regional um, sort of footprint. Uh, we, Westwood One didn't own any stations. They just owned programming or content and inventory, like the traffic reports, like, uh, you know, obviously NFL uh, network and different things like that. And so I knew I had that, uh, and um, and so I ended up taking the severance. I actually took three months off trying to start a company. 
um, knowing that I would be paid for that. Uh, and then I could kind of slow roll the opportunity with Westwood One um, and see if that's something I want to do. Is that where you wanted to start Sponsor United or was this another company? No, no, it wasn't. It was, I mean, it was related to the advertising industry. But, okay, okay. Um, and I think that was a problem. I didn't fully flush out sort of like, what's the pain point we're trying to solve? It was more yeah. of like, hey, mm-hmm. can we start a company with my experience and something, <laughs> you know? Totally. So uh, it, was, it was a good experience to go through. But, uh, but you know, it really didn't, it, you know, I, I couldn't really figure out how to really build it and get it going. And so uh, ended up taking that, that opportunity and, and working there. Well, let's, let's go to the Dolphins from, from there. So you, you were only at Westwood One for a little bit, and I, I'm assuming that you left because there was an opportunity that came your way to work for the Miami Dolphins. Is that right? Yeah, my, my former boss up in Boston at, in Intercom, uh, Jim Rushton, was re- being recruited to go down to Miami when uh, Steve Ross bought the team. He brought in Mike D, who came from the Red Sox, as COO, to be the CEO at the time. Mike had worked with Jim. So he was recruiting Jim to come down. And, um, and so I was aware of that before that sort of officially happened. And Jim was talking about, hey, if I'm going to go down there, um, really need somebody to build out a, a sort of an integrated media division because um, we think we can monetize our radio and television assets and centralize our content and do it you know, in a more effective way. And so that happened probably within about six months of me being at Westwood One, those conversations. And it was... Um, there was definitely was an alert to the NFL and Miami, and it was exciting. Um, at the same time, I had just met, uh, who is now my wife, um, a few months before, and I told her, I think on our first date, that I was going to marry her. So that was like the only challenge was like, well, how so am I- So you're like, hey, I'm going to marry you, but I'm going to go to Miami? Uh, yeah, I didn't know at the time <laughs> that I said I was going to marry her that I was going to Miami. I didn't know about that yet. It happened pretty <laughs> I was in July, and- uh, and then, then, then this started to happen in, uh, you know, August, September, and, and then, you know, a little bit further along. So, um, you sounds know, so, like it, all, it sounds like it all worked out though. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I told her, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go down here. She was getting her master's degree in, in New York and getting a scholarship for it. So I said, I'm going to marry you, but I'm going to go down here and do this. You're going to focus on your thing and then we'll get married and, you know, call it a day. And that's, that's, awesome. that's what happened. So, uh, so yeah, I had an opportunity. I mean, it was a really just a, such a compelling way to kind of pivot in my career. Um, you know, my fear was sort of getting typecast into just being in, in radio um, and, and sort of not being outside of that environment, whether it's TV or, or otherwise. And so I, th- I saw it as a great opportunity. I had no expectations to go down to Miami. I wanted to settle down in New York or, or the tri-state area uh, for the rest of my life. I thought that was it. Um, and then this opportunity presented itself. It was working with people that I knew and trusted um, on a really fun, compelling project, um, almost like a startup, to be honest with you, versus kind of coming into just filling a role. It was, hey, we're going to, we literally created our own PL. It was essentially a, its own separate entity within the Dolphins organization. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun uh, as, as well um, to be able to do that. And I just thought it was such a good experience to kind of learn a whole different market. I didn't really know that much about Miami. I mean, Boston and New York are different, but not that different. Um, so I thought there was just such value in kind of going down there and throwing myself, you know, into the unknown and and seeing where it goes. And I always kind of treated that opportunity because um, I did want it. My my father at the time was um, he had uh, he had lung cancer and and it was terminal and we were very close. And so uh, I, I always wanted to settle down back up here. But <clears throat> I kind of looked at that and said, this is this is almost like 
uh, going to college and maybe getting my master's degree, you know, four to six years, um, if, if that works. And, um, and that's kind of, you know, that was kind of the mentality there. And um, just, just, you know, obviously great opportunity. It's kind of led to some of the things that I'm doing today. And you were, you were a media, a media guy through your career up until that point. And, and it was the connection that you had through media that, that really got you the job down there yeah. because of that, that relationship. And you were able to, with the Dolphins, you were able to, to, to evolve and start to learn about a fully integrated sponsorship experience. So what, what are some of those learnings that you had with the Dolphins about, about sponsorship specifically? Yeah, the only experience that I had with sponsorship prior to that was um, there was this uh, thing called the Jingle Ball Concerts, which are actually in, in a lot of the major cities. iHeart uh, controls those. Um, and uh, and we would sell sponsorships against it. It's a really, really successful program. It's been going on forever. Um, but this was in sports. Um, so I didn't have any experience in that space at all. And really, when I started, it was more so focused on the media side. So we were in the process of negotiating to bring our radio rights in house, <clears throat> trying to take some of the television, the ancillary, like the pregame and the postgame show. Which your experience leading up is what helped you kind of get in there with that, yeah. right? To, to be able yeah. to help, help, help integrate that in. Well, and even, even the Westwood one side um, sort of gave some credibility of like, Hey, you're, you're dealing with, you know, seven figure deals, eight figure deals, um, large experienced sales staff, um, so that, that definitely was, was a bit of a component as well, just from a credibility standpoint, but yeah, so it, it kind of started on that side, but we had the ability, um, I had to hire a, or we had to hire a sales staff, uh, a, um, sort of a, a traffic, uh, continuity person, people, uh, that would sort of manage all the, the inventory and whatnot, spreadsheets and everything. And then on the content side, um, a gentleman who's now the chief marketing officer of the Padres, Wayne Partello, was brought in. We worked together as well in Boston. So we, we actually started within a week of each other 20 years ago in Boston. He was brought down and we were reconnected and he was basically handling all the content with the marketing and, and uh, radio groups. And so that's sort of how it all started. But we had the ability to, as we met with brands, to actually deliver a, a more 360 sort of solution based on whatever particular business objectives they were trying to uh, accomplish. Um, and so that might have been, while, while we had a budget for radio and that's sort of what would, um, radio kind of was the driver because it was so much inventory. Uh, at the time it was, it was a, a good amount of revenue. <clears throat> and so we had to make sure that we could sort of cover off and justify that. But with that, we could start to bundle in uh, different assets, signage, on-site activation, uh, you know, intellectual property rights, like official partner and things like that in order to drive additional revenue against uh, the radio line. At the same time, what I thought was really interesting was it allowed the team to open up new non-exclusive relationships because most people don't treat uh, television and radio in an exclusive fashion like they do a team sponsorship. So it allowed us to open up new relationships <clears throat> with brands that were, were uh, you know, uh, maybe competitive to our official partners where we could uh, essentially designate them maybe as radio only. So there was a, a bit of a church and state in terms of what this brand owned versus another brand, but it allowed us. Did that to ever become comp complicated with your, with your exclusive partnerships on the team side? Well, you always had to navigate those waters carefully and really have an understanding of, you know, what is, what is this brand's objectives and goals and what are these brands? Now I came yeah. from a world of, of 
media where you're used to dealing with, you know, 30 brands in a category for all we know. Um, you're not in exclusive relationships. That's, that's more of a sponsorship uh, thing than, than it is in the media space. So it's really about treating that brand as its own, you know, entity and figuring out what are those solutions, not really thinking about what, how does that impact other brands for the most part. Um, but in this particular space, we had to have a bit of a hybrid where it was, you know, let's make sure we're protecting uh, the interests of our uh, official sponsors. But at the same time, there might be audiences outside of what those official sponsors were buying. Because remember, that team didn't have radio or TV rights in the past. These were brought in. So it was new audiences that they weren't reaching anyway through their relationship with the Miami Dolphins. Now, in some cases, we would extend them over so we could create a more consistent message and even protect them in some ways from sort of guerrilla marketing coming in, where in the past we would, um, we would essentially uh, divvy up our rights. So we'd get a rights fee. The radio group would sell uh, advertising. The TV group would sell. The print group would sell something. The sponsorship group would sell something. And there wasn't any sort of cohesive strategic plan around that because everybody was out to just make as much money as possible and whatever they were you know, budgeted to, to drive revenue against. So in our case, because we control all that, we really were the, um, you know, we, we kind of had to hold ourselves accountable to and really be a steward to these partnerships to make sure they actually fit in well and they didn't conflict too much with, you know, one or another. It wasn't always perfect. You'd certainly sort of have that friction in some cases, which certainly also can sometimes drive, um, you know, uh, it's sometimes when you have multiple people in a space that does create more uh, desire, need to sort of own a space. And we certainly would allow people to have exclusive relationships if they were able and willing to sort of, you know, pay the freight and it made business sense for them. But um, in, for the most part, it was, uh, it, it ran relatively smoothly, I would say. And it, and it gave us an insurance policy that if, and this happened where our official bank partner, that was a partnership that had taken place long before I had gotten there, with uh, what was Wachovia, and then Wachovia was acquired by Wells Fargo during the partnership with the Dolphins. They had like one very large sign, and I think they had some hospitality, a suite, or whatever, and that was kind of it. There was no integration. There was no sort of strategic. This was sort of, you know, the tail end of sort of the, the signage, you know, buying just a big sign and things like that. Well, they decided as part of their plans, they were sort of getting out of the sponsorship space. In the past, that team may not have any relationships with other banks because maybe they've been in an exclusive relationship for five years. Yeah. In our case, we had relationships uh, with Chase Bank in television, with Popular Community Bank, with community events that we would do, with uh, Bank of America. With We had other uh, banks where we had relationships where it allowed us to tap into those current relationships and figure out which one may be able to step up or which, which one's... Um, uh, might maybe come in a, from a, a non-exclusive standpoint, so it worked out fairly well. That's great. And you and you were you were with the Dolphins for for five years, and then you then you went back up to to Brooklyn to as an SVP of Global Partnerships with BSE Global. Yeah, Brooklyn Sports and Entertainment. So they both they Perfect. both owned and operated uh, you know the Barclays Center. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets, but they also had the rights to sell against, you know, at the time, the New York Islanders, as well as ancillary programming within the venue, uh, within the Barclays Center, such as, you know, a boxing platform that was created. Um, they had, you know, four to five different verticals, as, as well as pulling in Nassau Coliseum. So 
it was it it didn't feel like an agent for these properties it actually felt like they were controlled and owned by us and that's sort of the way that that was structured uh, but it was it was a you know several different properties uh, and events under one umbrella when did the idea of sponsor United start it was like March of 2010 um, right uh, probably about three four months uh, in from uh, going to the Miami Dolphins coming off the heels of being in media and then going into sponsorship um, we we were meeting with a lot of different brands. Miami's a, a really interesting market. And, um, and at the time, it was kind of the hot new market, kind of like how Brooklyn was. There were a lot of brands that were choosing Miami as a market to sort of launch, whether it was because it's a gateway into you know, the, the Americas, Latin America, um, or because of the uniqueness of the market. And so we ended up, in many cases, meeting with these national brands that were looking at the Miami market to see if there was a strategic fit. And obviously sort of uh, selling this, the story of, of the Dolphins. Um, but the, one of the biggest challenges that we had is that many of these brands, while they valued the, um, you know, the market and whatnot, is that we were limited to a 75-mile geographic radius that we could essentially market and operate and, and launch those marketing campaigns with those brands. That's just the way that uh, you know, traditional sports leagues have been set up so that you know, the Cowboys can't come into, you know, New York Giants territory and sort yeah, of they all have areas that they can go, go into. Exactly. So, um, so in, in that we had met with a, a brand in particular, Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, we pitched them uh, these different concepts that they, they seem to really love, but they had, you know, given us that same sort of uh, excuse that, Hey, we would love to do this, but we really need to get several other of our key markets involved in order for us to be able to make a commitment here. And so we had, to, there was no mechanism to create sort of an unwired or a multi-market campaign within the NFL. We couldn't just bundle eight teams together, similar to what we do in media. We'd go to our other clear channel stations and, you know, put together a deal the next day and say, here it is. Um, we had to go to those teams, approach them, say, hey, we, we're, we're only doing this because we want to sort of drive our revenue and get this money for us, but they need to be in Denver. They need to be in Baltimore, New York, wherever it might be. And so we sort of piecemealed together this, this multi-market campaign. Um, and it was through that process that um, you, you really kind of saw up close and personal the, um, the diversity in, in what teams controlled. Some own their stadiums, some don't. Some own their media rights, some don't. The pricing, there was definitely an inconsistency in, in value, pricing and the like, quality. It was you know, some, some amazing things, some things that were not you know, as good. And, uh, and so through that process, I just kind of, and they ended up doing the deal and they, they worked with, uh, with those teams for like five, seven years afterwards. But it, that really kind of um, implanted in me the sort of the thought that this is, a, this is a very inefficient way that buying and selling is taking place with very, very limited access to data and information. And, um, you know, sponsorship is sort of the last bastion of offline buying and selling sort of the last bastion of, of, you know, there's data out there, there's really good data out there, but it's not democratized. It's not like you can go onto Google and kind of, or, or real estate, you can kind of see everything in one place. Um, and everybody sort of has access to the same information. It's, you know, a small percentage of brands that have the um, ability to invest in, you know, great agencies that can do a lot of this legwork uh, and get them data and information. There's a lot of participants local regional brands that might be new to the space that, you know, they're, they're in a one-to-one -one relationship with an entity 
And that entity is in a one-to-one relationship with their brand where they might not have the full spectrum of, uh, you know, data and information to sort of form the, the best partnership possible. So I just kind of looked at that at a macro level and, and, and started to think that this is a really inefficient way to, you know, do business. And at, at the time, you know, 2010 to 2015, what was happening in the advertising world at the same time, and, and I really, it really kind of um, became um, very apparent to me in, in 2015. I went to Ad Week uh, for the first time in five years up in New York when I, when I got back up there. And I sat in on a bunch of panels and, and speakers talking about programmatic ad buying, real-time buying, you know, real-time data and, and the like. And I just saw in that five-year period that I had been gone from New York media, how rapidly, uh, you know, the digital, the social uh, and, and traditional media and also the experiential space, it just sort of rapidly changed. Um, and when I looked at sponsorship, um, I saw amazing innovation, but it was, it was taking place in these silos uh, because it's, you know, 30 teams, 150 teams, you know, concert, they're all individually owned and operated. So there's innovation, but they're taking place sort of randomly versus sort of collectively in one direction. Uh, yet it still was growing at a, at a really rapid pace and continues to do so today. So I sort of saw both the, the benefits and the, you know, there's a benefit of, of an opaque market, certainly, uh, but there's also some limitations in that regard. And I, I looked at sponsorship as if you could make the industry easier for all participants to make smarter, more efficient decisions, you could create more deal flow, more revenue, more opportunities, similar to how um, the digital age evolved where it made it easier for people to participate because they had metrics and information to make you know, those decisions or to scale partnerships. So that, that's sort of what planted the seed for me of saying, all right, I clearly have a quote unquote problem or opportunity, uh, but it's, it's massive because you're looking to change a $60 billion uh, industry. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not like you could do it as a consultant um, and the like. And so the, the challenge there was how do, you, how do you solve for that? And that's why from 2010 to 2015, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out but I really, um, is that the time that you started kind of build, building the first version of the product and validating it with, with no, others? No, uh, I, you know, I, it just sort of stewed for a while. <laughs> I, sure. I, I think exactly what I described is probably where I left it many times and, and didn't go too much further. Uh, just busy with, you know, work and, and, and the, the current things that, that I was working on. But when I went up to New York and, and started working for the Nets and the Islanders, um, there was a weekend where I, I just had the most recent uh, NBA star report, which is an internal league report on revenues and, and you know, brands that are participating categories, and also had the NHL um, league report too. And I had had the most recent NFL Sabre report having been at the NFL. So it was, I was kind of like chuckling that, gee, I have access to three league reports from the current season you know, really valuable information that if you could sort of combine that and, and start to look at trends and, and information, be interesting to see what, what you would see. And so I had this exercise where I, I literally, my, my wife wasn't too happy about it, but I, I did this massive data dump. I looked at every brand that participated within this, the sponsorship space across those three leagues, 90 some odd teams. And I wanted to see, uh, you know, how many of those brands were local brands, like a local restaurant, regional, like a healthcare system, national, um, or international in terms of their footprint. 
And how many partnerships did they have in sponsorship? And the really eye-opening thing that I saw was that the majority of those regional, national, and international brands that in theory serve so many markets um, to, or they need to market to, 50% um, of them only worked with one property, one team, and one market. And about 95% of them uh, did not scale like they would in media. And so I, I sort of looked at, in, in television or radio, you would rarely see a one market TV buy, unless it was a test campaign for a future, you know, larger campaign. Mm -hmm. But that, that's the norm within sponsorship. And so I started to, really beginning in, in 2014, um, really in my time with the Nets, I talked to, you know, friends that were at brands. I asked them, you know, why, why don't you do more? Why don't you scale? You're in all these other markets, yet you only work with one or two organizations, teams. And, um, you know, the consistent feedback that I, I would receive is, uh, A, we don't, have the, we don't have the bandwidth to, like, talk to 400 different teams and sit down with them and tell them what our needs are and challenges. And, B, even if we could – it's really hard to compare apples to apples what the Tribeca Film Festival does versus Lambeau Field versus Coachella versus a marathon. Um, it's really hard to kind of compare all those things and understand like, is this the best place for us to be? And so you created this software that basically can pull all this data together. And one of the interesting things that I think you do is that you have, how many thousands of scouts do you have across the country? Uh, well, we've had since we started in uh, in really in 2017 um, about 3,500 scouts that have that have worked for us at any given time about you know four to five hundred that are actively working and, with us. And you get them in, you get them into these different venues, these different sporting events to track which sponsors are engaged um, and where they're spending their money, and 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 then that comes back in to to the software. So you have you have over 3,000 scouts all over the country. I mean, how do you manage all that? Well, the first thing we had to do before we created the scouting network was standardize what can be bought and sold within these partnerships. And sure. so I looked at all the agreements that I had. I looked at all the CRM systems. When I first got to the Dolphins, we had a CRM system with like over 1,100 unique assets. They would just give it a different name, I think. And it was just kind of rings on a tree. So standardizing everything that could be in a deal you know, the, the, the type of signage, you know, so we had to kind of look at it based on physical venues, intellectual property rights, community events. It was almost like going into the Amazon and figuring out, all right, how do you create a structure? Yeah. Plants, animals, reptiles, all the way down to, you know, very, very granular details like that's inner bowl, TV visible, uh, or lower bowl, TV visible, static signage, basket stanchion versus on court versus, you know, whatever. And then look so, at, so did up. you have to build, did you have to kind of get this, these levels built out and then build a platform for these individuals to go and help you get this info? Well, in, in order to track information, you know, it's, it's bad data in bad data out and, and you know, garbage like, in garbage out principle, right? Yeah. So, so we had to have a structure to be able to first and foremost, make sure we could consistently look at everything. Yeah. Secondly, we had to look at what is all the offline data that nobody else really can, can get because you'd physically need to be in that environment in order to see the beer poured on the fourth level of Madison Square Garden uh, or a poster here or a table here or a community event or, you know, whatever it might be. So there's the offline component of data um, and, then, and, and that might change day over day or game over game. 
And then there's all of the other things like TV visible signage, social media posts, television commercials, radio, anything that's in association with those properties that can be bought and sold. Ancillary media rights to print, to signage, to event and everything like that. So we had to figure out a way to, uh, almost like Google Maps, um, we had to figure out a way to actually physically get all of that information, acquire all of that information, capture that in a scalable way, organize it, review it to make sure that it was actually accurate and then build it back into one uh, easy way to essentially look at any sorts of reports and information, whether it's by category, brand, team, region, asset, um, creative, you name it. So that was kind of the biggest challenge was first organizing. It was a painful process, I should say. And then how do we, uh, for the component that is sort of offline data, really the only way at the time that we could figure out how to acquire that data um, was uh, by massively crowdsourcing that information at scale um, across 50, 70, 80 different markets, cities across the country, hundreds, you know, now, now thousands of, of teams and events. And is know. it mostly sports or are you, are you other account, are you focused on other cat or uh, other non-traditional properties like entertainment events, arts, yeah. causes? In the like beginning, that. we focused on um, when we started before we even had a platform, we focused on the big five professional sports leagues and said, how do we get every partnership, every single deal, uh, direct, indirect media or, or sponsor, and then what they buy and all the creative and everything. So we did that first there because we thought that if you could sort of figure out how to solve for the most complex of partnerships and perfect, you know, that those, those big five leagues generate, you know, I don't know, 3.6, $3.8 billion of revenue. It's, you know, I think it's about 15% of all us revenues is in, is really 150 or so teams. Collectively. You can work your way down from there. Well, as you scale, it becomes easier or it's simplified. Yeah. It's just more of. And so mm -hmm. we wanted to get the complexity part sort of solved first and then going into college or, or a concert or a marathon would be somewhat easier, less partners and, and the like. So that's kind of how we, we treated that. Um, now it's about two thirds sports, which it actually mirrors almost the revenue. Um, if you look at the revenue breakout of sports versus um, you know, arts and entertainment um, in that way. Um, so it's, it's certainly still a, you know, a part of it, but, uh, but we track uh, every, uh, you know, over, over 500 music venues, I think over 400 um, music festivals, or at least up until wow. music festivals were live to out of home in key markets to media, local media uh, in, uh, in, I think it's like the top 30 markets as well, national media to, um, you know, esports. I mean, it's pretty diverse in terms of what we track now. And it's in the US, uh, in Canada, internationally um, as well. So, we, um, you know, it's, it, it complements the more data that you get on just the overall, uh, you know, deal brand, what does that brand do across the board? It gives you a better perspective. So the more data you collect, it just creates a healthier look and view of how that brand may be going to market or what their marketing campaign looks like or what regions are important to them as well. What are some of the biggest categories that you're seeing right now, especially during, during this this pandemic time? What are the big, the biggest categories that you see? Generally speaking, we've seen just a complete shift of, of interest from sort of the, you know, the top 40 categories in, in sponsorship generate, um, I think it's 80% of the total revenue 
uh, in sponsorship. Uh, we track about 210 different unique subcategories of business. So what's happened is that's completely flipped uh, from an interest standpoint to looking at almost, almost exclusively uh, the majority of, of interest is in sort of 40, uh, category 40 and above. Um, and that's really driven by both the need to find uh, brands and categories that are, um, well, brands that are challenger brands that can seize upon this opportunity to uh, enter into the sponsorship space at, at a cost-effective um, uh, way that they might not ever been able to have done because of the current environment that exists right now where they can come in. So you're starting to see a lot of these brands, these challenger brands, new, new entrants into the space that are using this as an opportunity to get sort of widespread uh, visibility or sort of driving whatever their particular business needs are. And you're also seeing that it's almost like survival mode for properties, teams to start to look at who are those brands that are thriving in the current environment or looking to capitalize on the current environment. So that's definitely driven by the technology space. Um, there's certainly the sort of the, the, the obvious categories, but you know, like on-demand delivery services and things like that. But even in the gaming space, where it's, it's about acquisition and just user acquisition and data, um, which they need to sort of build that foundation, that's still very, very important to them as well. So you're starting to see some new entrants into that space uh, too. Um, FinTech, again, you're starting to look at where FinTech companies normally wouldn't have an opportunity to do business. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's like 98, 99% of teams within the big five leagues have a banking deal. Some leagues, literally every team has a deal. And fin now, fintech being like a SoFi. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, and the challenge has generally been that, well, banking, you know, usually will carve that, um, carve that particular piece out so that nobody can come in. But now with, you know, hey, we need to be more flexible. We need to look to carve things up. We need to bring yeah. some entrances. That, that's sort of changing things. You're also seeing increased competition from esports and media publishers that are you know, not necessarily looking to capitalize on the current environment, but certainly seizing on the opportunity to talk to brands that normally would be in the sort of the physical space, not having that opportunity where they can come in with a, with a pretty strong value proposition related to eyeballs and engagement from their platforms, whether it be esports or like a bar stool or things like that. So they're really searching for those uh, brands that are still active, are looking to still spend to convert them over or introduce them into their space for the first time and then acquire them as long-term customers. Well, I got a few, few questions here as we wrap up, Bob, but thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast today. But what do you, what do you feel like the future looks like for Sponsor United? Some of the things we're doing now, we never envisioned as we, as we entered into this. And it's really like opportunities presented itself. So as we sort of built this platform, introduced it, started to gain adoption, new opportunities sort of um, uh, were, were built out of that. Um, and so, um, and that's, that's kind of the exciting part of this, but um, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're growing fairly rapidly in the brand space. We haven't really talked a lot about it, but we've sort of looked at our platform and, it, and it's customized to every organization that works with us actually based on what they represent, who do they work with, what's their role within the organization and, and the like. And so, um, we're starting to see really great brand adoption as well. And that was always part of our plan of, of how do we have properties within this platform at scale? How do we have brands? We sort of want to be the infrastructure of the sponsorship industry. We're not looking to be 
um, you know, an, an agent uh, or, you know, a consultancy firm. It's how do we create a, uh, this infrastructure that sponsorship lives on that can be more efficient and effective in that way. And so we're really starting to see that on the brand side, brands using it in, in ways in which we never envisioned as well. I always consider our partners almost like a free research and development department uh, because part of what we do is we, we essentially create or we provide live on-demand research uh, assistance. We're almost like a virtual uh, assistant to, you know, these thousands of, of individuals. We sort of kind of um, disrupted that space where we centralized a lot of those things that would normally have been done within these individual entities, hiring an admin or uh, somebody to sort of assist and creating a group of really well-trained people that are responsive like a Zappos, uh, informed like a consulting group, and have technology to be extremely fast and smart with how they sort of serve so many different business cases um, you know, on a minute-to-minute basis uh, uh, every single day. And those ideas come in of, hey, you know, can you guys do this? Here's what we're seeing within the Jersey patch space. Can we look at a share of signage within X, Y, and Z within your data? Um, can we look at, um, you know, if we work with a, uh, a major uh, CPG company that wants to see how the grocery category is buying an individual brand so they can complement what they're doing and sell through more product. So we're seeing a lot of this uh, sort of innovation. So the biggest challenge for us is just making sure that we're solving these different constituents in ways that work for them. Yep. What, what makes you get up in the morning and do what you do? I, I just love solving problems. I love the creative freedom that comes along with that. I, I think it's like, uh, I loved Legos as a kid. My play Legos with my kids now. So I think it's that sort of desire to create things that you never even thought of before um, and solve real problems uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, I used to get bored really easily, um, you know, doing the same thing over and over again. I, I, I need to continually read and try new things. It's just, uh, I guess the way my, I'm wired and um, I guess it's the, it's the right brain. It's a lefty in me, I suppose. But I think um, the cool thing is working with all these different organizations, um, you know, every day presents new problems and new opportunities in terms of how we sort of solve and, and serve the industry in a more effective way and kind of help the whole industry. And if you, if you were listening to this podcast, you know, 10, 20 years ago, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? That's a loaded question because if I knew that, I might not be doing what I'm doing right now. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's like the Michael J. Fox, you know, you do one thing in Back to the Future and it like might change the entire <laughs> picture. You know, there's, there's always things that I, you know, I, I look at. I guess back. if you're going to give yourself advice. Uh, I guess meet my wife uh, five or 10 years earlier somehow. I guess go to there Beirut, her door so I can spend more time with her than I, than I already have um, and, and our kids. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I, I think probably uh, always sort of looking from within and, and figuring out how do you how do you not um, you know how do you continually improve and sort of challenge yourself and not get too comfortable in, in the environment that you're in. But uh, I've been extremely lucky just with people that have come into my life that I've learned from some indirectly, some directly, um, and and challenging environments that I've that I've really learned through. So in in some ways the the challenge and the grind. Um, and failure in a lot of ways has, um, you know, has helped me more than maybe if it was easier, um, to be honest with you. So it's, it's, that's a, it's a really hard question to answer other than, uh, you know, my, my father passed away about eight years ago and I spent a lot of time with him, but probably spend extra time with him personally. 
Uh, but from a professional business standpoint, I suppose I would have probably invested in learning how to code because it certainly isn't cheap uh, building technology. Yeah. I'll tell you that much. I yeah, we didn't, we didn't even get into that point, did we? <laughs> well, I, I don't code, but uh, you know, I know enough about it now to know that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but I, I probably would have learned the wrong type of code to write, so I, I probably would have gotten myself in trouble. No, that's awesome. Bob, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate yeah, Bob Lynch, president and founder of Sponsor United. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us at Sponsor Talk on Twitter and at the Sponsorship Space on LinkedIn and join our community if you're interested in learning more. Thanks and have a great day.